Welcome to the podcast, Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. For the past 10 years, the case of the Long Island serial killer known by the acronym LISK, or LISK, has gone unsolved. The discovery of this killer began with the disappearance of 24-year-old adult escort Shannon Gilbert. Over time, a series of disturbing discoveries and unanswered questions have emerged, contributing to the complexity of the case. However, the long-standing hunt for Lisk reached a breakthrough on July 13, 2023, when the elusive killer was allegedly captured. The perpetrator has been identified as Rex Huerman, a wealthy Manhattan architect who was married with two children and residing in the very area where he committed his gruesome crimes. The arrest of Rex has brought a mix of relief and closure to the community and the families of the victims, ending a decade-long reign of terror that has left a haunting impact on the region. However, as of yet, he has only been charged in three of the cases with expectations of charges in the fourth in the coming weeks. Until Rex pleads guilty or is convicted at trial, he enjoys the presumption of innocence. This case only came to light after the disappearance of Shannon Gilbert. Shannon inadvertently played a pivotal role in the discovery of the Long Island serial killer. On May 1st, 2010, Shannon, a 23-year-old adult escort, vanished after visiting a client in Oak Beach, Long Island. Her disappearance prompted an intense search operation and led to the startling discovery of several bodies in the surrounding area during the search efforts. Oak Beach is a secluded and gated enclave with only 72 homes. Now, the night that Shannon disappeared, she arrived shortly after 1 o'clock a.m. with her driver, Michael Pack. Shannon had previously worked for an escort service who always provided a driver as security to and from her appointments. However, Shannon decided that she could make more money on her own with a smartphone and ads she placed on Craigslist, or an online forum called Backpage. Backpage was a website that gained notoriety for being a platform where sex workers could advertise their services, leading to debates about its role in facilitating human trafficking and exploitation. And we're going to try to talk about that for a minute, hopefully without steeping into a controversial minefield. We are going to discuss the heavily debated topic 
of the profession of sex work since most of the victims in this case were sex workers at the time of their deaths. The phrase sex work is real work is used to advocate for the recognition of sex work as a legitimate form of labor that should be subject to labor rights and protections. The goal is to reduce the stigma associated with sex work and promote the well-being and safety of sex workers. Now, those on the other side of the debate believe all sex work is exploitive. They don't believe it's a career choice, but rather the results of a lack of choices. The stark reality is that many people who engage in sex work do so out of economic necessity. They may lack access to education, stable employment, opportunities, or face systematic discrimination that limits their options for earning a living wage. Regardless of where you fall in the debate, sex work is heavily stigmatized in our society as well as many others. And it's this very stigma associated with sex workers that allowed so many of the victims of the Long Island serial killer to fall through the cracks of the justice system. It may very well be the reason why it took 12 years to bring the Lisk killer to justice. Many believed he never stopped killing. Rather, he just found a new burial site, one that is still undiscovered. So when Shannon fell into becoming a sex worker, some believe that it could have been because of her troubled background. Her mother said that she was difficult to raise and chose to give her up to foster care when she was just five years old, which was difficult because while in foster care, Shannon still went to school with her two other siblings who lived at home. This often led her to feelings of rejection and abandonment. In truth, Shannon likely was better off in the foster home where she flourished in school. She was extremely smart and talented and did very well in school, even skipping a grade and graduating high school early. She also had dreams of going to New York and becoming an actress or a singer. It was only after Shannon became a sex worker and had access to money that she began to reconnect with her family. In fact, at times, she became the sole source of support. While Shannon's upbringing was turbulent, that didn't mean that she wasn't loved. She was very much loved by her family. It was their insistence that Shannon had met foul play that pushed this case into the national headlines. On the night that she disappeared, she called her driver, telling him that he could leave. But a few minutes later, she told him to stay. A little while later, the client came out and asked the driver to remove Shannon from his home, saying that she had flipped out and refused to leave. That's when Shannon took off running towards other homes while talking to a 911 operator. She told the operator that someone was after her and trying to kill her. She knocked on the homes of several residents, and when they offered to call the police, this seemed to upset Shannon even more, which caused her to take off running. All the while, her driver, Michael Pack, was running after her, trying to get her to calm down. He eventually lost sight of Shannon, and she was never seen alive again. What no one knew at the time was that there was a 22-minute 911 call from Shannon, and it would be only after this discovery that police began looking for her. Shannon's mother, Mary Gilbert, reported Shannon missing right away. However, once police learned that she was a sex worker, they said that she wasn't considered a missing person and she would probably come home on her own, which is ridiculous and shows an incredible lack of empathy and bias towards sex workers. 
It's this attitude towards the victims that has permeated throughout this case. But Shannon's mother and sisters weren't giving up. They went to the press and they organized searches of the area in hopes of finding her. Now, the next day, Michael Pack, who was the driver and Shannon's boyfriend, went back to Oak Beach and knocked on the doors asking if anyone has seen Shannon. And when they called the police to come out, one of the police officers callously laughed at their efforts, telling them to go home. He said Shannon was probably at home waiting for them. While Shannon's remains were eventually found in a marshy area, the search for her body led investigators to unearth the bodies of multiple other women in the same vicinity. They were originally called the Gilgo Beach Four. But soon, that number would soar to 10 known victims and countless unknown victims. It's very likely that once the Lisk killer's burial ground was discovered, he had to move to another area to dispose of bodies. Experts on the Long Island Serial Killer website believe that there are at least 18 total victims who have disappeared from the area. While police were out searching for Shannon's remains, it was an officer training his canine who originally stumbled upon the bodies, eventually helping to uncover 10 bodies in total. Ironically, Shannon is not considered to be a victim of the Lisk killer. Initially, there were reasons that led investigators to believe that Shannon Gilbert's disappearance was not directly linked to the Long Island serial killer's case. One key factor was that Shannon was bipolar and thought to be in a manic episode when she went missing. Her boyfriend said that Shannon stopped taking her bipolar medication a year earlier, believing it made her feel numb and less creative. Both her boyfriend and her driver said that her moods could be quite unpredictable at times. Shannon had a metal plate in her jaw from a fight where her boyfriend had punched her in the face. He shockingly blamed this incident on Shannon's erratic behavior. Then he tried to minimize the severity of the injury by saying he didn't realize how hard he had hit her. Investigators believed, due to this narrative that she was unpredictable, that she likely got stuck in a marshy area and drowned while in a frenzied psychotic state. Her body was found in that marshy area nearly a year and a half after she went missing. Others believe that she may have been killed by another resident of Oak Beach and her death was unrelated to the Lisk killer. Shannon's mother was so outraged by this finding that she hired the services of famed forensic pathologist and medical examiner, Dr. Michael Baden. Dr. Baden has conducted autopsies and provided expert analysis in numerous high-profile criminal cases, including those involving celebrities, politicians, and controversial deaths. Shannon's first autopsy performed by the Suffolk County Medical Examiner's Office officially ruled her death as undetermined. Now, in the second autopsy conducted by Dr. Baden, he noted that Shannon's hyoid bone was broken. The hyoid bone is a U-shaped bone located in the neck, and its fractures can sometimes be associated with strangulation or other forms of neck trauma. The discovery raised questions and further fueled speculation about the circumstances surrounding Shannon's death. However, it's essential to emphasize that a broken hyoid bone does not conclusively indicate the cause of death. 
Its fracture can occur in various circumstances, and additional evidence and context are required to establish the cause and manner of death definitively. The official narrative has evolved over time, and as of this date, authorities have still not ruled out the possibility of Shannon being a Lisk victim. Although web sleuths and other amateur investigators into the Lisk case have all believed that Shannon was one of Rex's victims. Now, through Shannon's death, her mother became a staunch advocate for police reform for investigations involving missing sex workers. Mary Gilbert later told People magazine in 2016, quote, I hope it will bring awareness to any police department anywhere that regardless of who you are and what you do for a living, that you are not judged and that all cases are handled equally, end quote. Sadly, Mary wouldn't live long enough to see the Lisk killer captured. Six years after her daughter's death, Mary was attacked by her youngest daughter, Sarah Gilbert. Sarah, who had been hospitalized over a dozen times in the years prior to Mary's death, was diagnosed with schizophrenia. While in a psychotic state, she attacked and stabbed her mother over 200 times, killing her. She was convicted in 2017 and is currently serving 25 years to life in prison. As we stated previously, the subsequent investigation into the newly found bodies brought attention to a series of unsolved murders and disappearances of young women that spanned back several years. As authorities delve deeper into the connections between the cases, a disturbing pattern emerged, pointing to the work of a serial killer. The proximity of the victims and their similarities in their profiles and causes of death indicate a single perpetrator was responsible for these heinous crimes. The realization led to the identification of the Long Island Serial Killer, or the LISC acronym. It was a chilling name given to this mysterious killer that embodies fear and anxiety, one that gripped the community. Neighbors of this newly announced suspect were in complete shock that they were possibly living next to a serial killer who we now know as Rex Hewerman. While Shannon Gilbert's disappearance initially set off a chain of events that exposed the list killer, the other cases remained unsolved until the arrest of Rex Hewerman on July 13, 2023. With the capture of a wealthy architect living in the area, law enforcement were finally able to link him to a series of three murders, soon to be four, and provide some measure of closure to the families of the victims who had long yearned for justice. But before we discuss Rex and how he was captured, let's discuss the media coverage surrounding this case. And more specifically, let's discuss the forgotten victims. As the news cycle unfolds on the next big crime or the next big serial killer, there is always an all-too-familiar pattern in the media coverage. Once again, the limelight shines relentlessly on the malevolent force behind the heinous crimes, while the voices of the innocent victims fade into obscurity. And it's a heart-wrenching reality that those who fell victim to the unfathomable cruelty and darkness remain mere footnotes in the gruesome narrative. Each life lost holds a story, dreams, and a future that was ruthlessly stolen away. They were not just statistics or pawns in the killer's sick game. These individuals held no value to Rex, and he allegedly rendered their lives meaningless. 
but to their friends and family, their value was priceless. They were someone's child, sibling, friend, and confidant. Several of them were mothers themselves. Yet society seems drawn to the enigma of the perpetrator, the twisted reasons for their motivations, leaving behind the raw anguish of grieving families who struggle to find solace. We must remember that these victims deserve to be seen, heard, and honored for the lives they once led, not eclipsed by the lurid fascination that surrounds their tormentor. 100% agree with that statement, Ricky. And what seems to be a pattern with that, too, is someone who goes to murder a sex worker seems to be very well aware that the police will let it slip through the cracks, and they have trust that they will never get caught. Well, thanks to the website on the Gilgo Beach Homicide Investigation and the book Lost Girls by Robert Kolker, we have more information than usual on the victims, and you should totally check out those two sources. Let's start with Melissa Bartholomew. Melissa was last seen at her home residence. She lived in a basement apartment in the Union Port section of the Bronx. She was just 4 feet 10 inches tall and was 24 years old when she was last seen on July 12, 2009. Melissa was a sex worker who advertised on Adult Friend Finder as well as other similar sites. She used the alias Chloe and had tattoos of the words Blaze and Focus on her back and chest. And she tried her best to be safe and would often meet clients at bars, restaurants, and hotels on the west side of Manhattan. On July 12, 2009, Melissa told a friend that she was going to see a man and would be back in the morning. This friend was aware that Melissa was a sex worker, but didn't ask for details for safety reasons. Safety protocols and practices can vary among sex workers. When possible, sex workers may choose to meet clients in familiar or safe locations such as hotels, established brothels, or private residences that they trust. Another safety measure is to carry self-defense items such as pepper spray, small weapons, or even personal alarm devices. But these safety precautions are meaningless with someone like Rex, who would say and do anything to be alone with his victims. Especially with someone the size of Melissa, who was just 4 foot 9 inches and less than 100 pounds. She was the size of most 10-year-olds. And to point out, 10-year-olds held a specific interest for Rex, which we will get into when we discuss his computer search history. There really wasn't much Melissa could do to protect herself from a 6'6", 270-pound serial killer. Now, while Melissa's friend knew that she was with someone but had no specific details, her cell phone records showed that she traveled from the Bronx to Manhattan in an automobile. And when Melissa's mother hadn't heard from her daughter for a few days, she reported her missing to the New York Police Department on July 18, 2009. After Melissa had been reported missing, her younger sister received a series of taunting phone calls from someone using Melissa's phone. Police were able to track these calls down to an area near the Port Authority bus terminal on 8th Avenue and also near Penn Station. They were also able to trace the burner phone to an area near Rex's home. Police thoroughly canvassed all of the areas immediately following the calls. However, due to the large amount of pedestrians and vehicle traffic, no leads were developed. And just to remind you, this is 2009, about 14 years ago. 
On December 11, 2011, Melissa's body was found on the north side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach during the search for Shannon Gilbert. Although she was the first victim found, she is thought to be the second victim of the Gilgo Four. And during that same search for Shannon Gilbert, police discovered another body, the body of Maureen Brainerd Barnes, who was just 24 years old when she went missing. At the time of her disappearance, Maureen and her friend Sarah were working together at a telemarketing company. And they had a lot in common. They both went to the same high school and they came from the same small town. They didn't know each other in high school because Maureen had to drop out when she was just 16 years old when she got pregnant with her first child. Eventually, the father of her child and her got married, and then they got divorced. The couple decided that the baby's father was the more stable parent, and their daughter mostly lived with him. She never married the father of her second child, a son, but he was helping her out with Ren at the time of her disappearance. Maureen hated feeling financially dependent on him. At the time she took the telemarketing job with Sarah, she was having trouble covering all of her bills and supporting both of her children. And Sarah was struggling too, and that is when Maureen offered to help her out with a side job. She told Sarah that she needed a driver to be with her while she gave a client a massage. Sarah told Maureen that she didn't realize that she was a masseuse. Soon, Sarah learned that massage meant something entirely different. Within three weeks, both Sarah and Maureen were giving massages on the side as a way to supplement their income. At the time of her disappearance, Maureen was living in Norwich, Connecticut. She is believed to have taken an Amtrak train from New London, Connecticut to Grand Central Terminal in Manhattan on July 6, 2007. According to the Gilgo News website, while in Manhattan, she was staying at the Super 8 Motel. She was 4 feet, 11 inches tall, and was advertising herself as a sex worker on Craigslist, Backpage, and other similar websites. It appeared that Rex had a specific type. He liked women who were small and petite and looked like young girls. Maureen would advertise herself using the names Juliana or Marie. And it was routine for her to travel to Manhattan for a few days a week to work as an escort and then return home to Connecticut. Occasionally, Maureen would travel with Sarah, who worked out of a different room at the same location. Now, in the past, they were both known to use a male friend, who they referred to as their cousin, to accompany them to meet new clients. This was a safety measure that they would use for their own protection. Now, Maureen was with Sarah the weekend that she went missing. However, Sarah returned home early and left Maureen behind. Maureen was determined to work another day to make enough money to pay her rent. And she was last heard from on July 9, 2007 at 11.43 p.m. That night, she told a friend that she was going to meet someone outside of the motel for an out call. Maureen was reported missing by Sarah to the Norwich Police Department on July 14, 2007. The New York Police Department assisted the Norwich Police Department in the missing person investigation, eventually taking it over. Now, Maureen's body was found three and a half years later on December 13, 2010 on the north side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. She had been strangled and placed inside of a burlap bag. She is believed to be the first victim of the Gilgo Beach Four. The next victim was Amber Lynn Costello. She was 27 years old when she went missing and she lived in West Babylon. 
Amber suffered from addiction and substance abuse problems, which often led her to placing herself into risky situations. Just like the other victims, she was only 4 feet 10 inches tall and less than 100 pounds. She would often advertise herself on Craigslist and Backpage to support her addiction to heroin. She would use the names Carolina and Mia and had several identifying tattoos. Amber was very much loved and missed by her friends, roommates, and family. She had recently moved to New York from Clearwater, Florida, after completing a 28-day drug rehab program. Well, unfortunately, she relapsed shortly before she disappeared. Amber's roommate was also a sex worker, along with two male roommates. Often, the two male roommates would arrange dates with clients for the women to help keep them safe. Amber did both in-calls at her home and out-calls at the homes or motel rooms of her clients. Amber was last seen leaving her home on foot on September 2, 2010, to meet a client who was picking her up at her house. Now, Amber did not have a cell phone with her on the night that she disappeared. She shared a phone with her roommates. Amber was found on December 13, 2010, on the north side of Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach. And this was also during the search for Shannon Gilbert. She is believed to be the fourth victim of the Gilgo Beach Four. She, too, was found strangled and naked inside of a burlap sack. The next victim was Megan Waterman. She was 22 years old when she disappeared on June 6, 2010. She was a very much loved mother, daughter, and sister. She was a resident of Scarborough, Maine, and was a sex worker who advertised on Craigslist and Backpage. She used the name Lexi, and she was last seen by her family boarding a bus from Maine to New York. She may have been meeting up with a male who was known to traffic her. She was known to stay at hotels and motels on Long Island, including the Holiday Inn Express, where she was last known to stay. At 1.30 a.m. on June 6th, she left to meet with a client. She called her male friend to let him know that she was going to a convenience store near the hotel to meet him. Megan was reported missing by her family a few days later. They said it was unlike her to not be in contact or not even to check in on her three-year-old daughter. She was found on December 13, 2010 at the same location on the north side of the Ocean Parkway near Gilgo Beach during the missing person search for Shannon Gilbert. She is believed to be the third victim in what is known as the Gilgo Beach Four. Like the other victims, she was small and found naked and strangled inside of a burlap bag. Now, on the Gilgo News website, it is noted that her trafficker was arrested on April 11, 2012 and sentenced to three years in federal prison for commercial human trafficking. The next victim was Jessica Taylor. There is not a lot of information on her other than she was working as a sex worker at the time of her disappearance. She disappeared in early 2003. However, her partial skeletal remains were found in New York City in a wooded area in Manorville on July 26, 2003. And the rest of her remains were found on December 13, 2010 along Ocean Parkway during the search for Shannon Gilbert. And the fact that the Lisk killer moved partial remains of several victims from Manorville to Ocean Beach shows a sophistication to confuse authorities and thwart their investigation. It also shows that at one time, he had another preferred body dump site. This is one of the many reasons why certain members of law enforcement believe the Lisk killer never stopped killing. 
The next victim was known as Jane Doe Number 6 when her partial skeletal remains were located in a wooded area in Manorville in September of 2000. And this is the same area where they found Jessica Taylor's remains, although there is no evidence that the women knew each other or ever crossed paths. It's likely that this was the Lisk serial killer's first burial ground before he moved to Gilgo Beach. Now, through genetic genealogy, Jane Doe was given her name back in 2020. She was 24-year-old Valerie Mack from Philadelphia. She worked as an escort and would often use the alias Melissa Taylor. Family members last saw Valerie in the spring or summer of 2000 in Port Republic, New Jersey. And sadly, she was never reported as missing. Like the other suspected Lisk victims, she was small and petite. The next victim is a John Doe. To date, he has never been identified. His skeletal remains were discovered along the same Ocean Parkway on April 4, 2011. It was estimated that he was a male between the ages of 17 and 23 and of Asian descent. His body was found wearing women's clothing at the time of his death. He was approximately 5 feet 6 inches tall. His death was estimated to have taken place between 2000 and 2005. The last known Lisk victim was an unidentified female non-Caucasian toddler. Her skeletal remains were discovered along the Ocean Parkway in close proximity to Valerie Mack on April 4, 2011. However, DNA analysis later identified her as the child of another victim known as Peaches, whose remains were found in Nassau County. She was believed to be two years old at the time of her murder. To date, Peaches has still not been identified. She was given the name Peaches because of a tattoo with that name found on her body. Now, according to police records, there are between 10 to 18 suspected victims of Lisk, although not all of them have been named or forensically tied to him. So there you have it. Just when you think a decades-old case seemingly has been left cold and remain a mystery, investigators come out of the woodwork to announce a lead suspect in the Gilgo Beach murders case. And we're hoping that the friends and the family members of these victims can feel some sense of closure soon, even though they lost their loved one. Now, we are going to end this episode here and pick back up with the conclusion in part two. In part two, we will cover the history of corruption in the Suffolk County Police Department and Prosecutor's Office, and we will go into the background of the main suspect, Rex Hewerman, and how a new task force identified him as their main suspect within just six weeks of police work, using all of the original evidence from this case. And this concludes this week's episode. We just want to shout out to all of our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting our show. We really, really appreciate you. Thank you for listening to Crime Salad, and we will be back next week. 